This is the Stand and Deliver Comedy Podcast with Rodders. Stand and Deliver! Hello and welcome to the Stand and Deliver Comedy Podcast. My name is Rodders. Uh, right now I'm a podcaster, but I'm also a stand-up comedian and I'm the promoter at the Stand and Deliver Comedy Club, which exists every second Thursday up above Smoking Billies in the centre of Reading. We're now on to episode eight of the podcast, so thanks for everyone who's written a nice iTunes review. In fact, Go write one now if you haven't. iTunes.rodders.com is the quick link to take you through to the iTunes store. And every review massages my ego. Yes, sure. But it also gets us up the iTunes chart. The more downloads we get, the more motivated I will be to keep uh, churning out more of these episodes. I say churning out. That makes it sound like a chore, doesn't it? It's a pleasure to uh, talk to some of the people I talk to on this podcast. Uh, In fact, all of them. Why would I get on anyone I didn't like? It's basically my way of giving you a peek behind the curtain into the weird world of stand-up comedy. I ask open questions and hopefully comedians open up to me and tell them about their life and uh, comedy in general. It's not necessarily a funny podcast. I don't expect comedy, inverted commas. It's it's about comedy, uh, but inadvertently, a lot of these people are just naturally funny anyway. And if they're not funny, they're blooming interesting. Um, so our guest today is Joe Baines. I've trying, I'm trying my best to rack my brains for when I met Joe Baines first. It must have been a while ago, but my main memory of him, but I must have met him before because he booked me for a string of gigs in Edinburgh the first time I ever went up there and, uh, he, hadn't, he didn't really know me that well, and uh, he was good enough to put me on every single night for a week, which was uh, uh, lovely of him. And I, I've been gradually paying him back by booking him every now and again. And he's, he always does a good job, does Joe. And what's particularly interesting about this episode, it shows him as one of life's great go-getters. He has an amazing story to tell. He was born in India, came over here knowing next to no English, had to struggle with that, and also... He used to be, he went from being chronically shy to now a pretty damn good, powerful comic who I've just seen handle some really, really quite tough rooms with just a, a wonderful affability and a smile. He, he's just probably one of the more charming comics that I've uh, seen perform on the circuit. He, he's very interesting, his whole life story. He could have written a book about this, but instead he decided to tell his whole story on my podcast, and I'm very grateful for him doing that. Uh, but before, I, well, I thought I'd tell one of my own stories. I, I'd love to know how many people actually just skip my preambles and head straight to the interviews. What I'll do, I might, I might sneak in a chance to win a million pounds in the middle of one of my preambles to give you an incentive to listen. Um, I won't, um, in all honesty, that this podcast, I'm, I'm amazed I can afford the, the web space uh, to put it on. <laughs> and if you want to hear the tragic tale of why the podcast disappeared, it involves uh, potentially Russian hackers and uh, uh, me going to court. Uh, download the last episode, episode seven, and it will, of course, features a uh, interview with uh, the incredible Russell Hicks, who had some uh, all sorts of opinions and all sorts of things is, is very interesting. Uh, so, usually in this podcast, I, I often tell anecdotes about silly things that have happened at gigs, but sometimes uh, the journey is more important uh, than the destination, uh, so to speak. I had the craziest journey back from a gig in Oxford. I mean, I, I couldn't really tell you much about 
the gig. I think it was all right. I tried out some new stuff. It was a, a very productive in that sense, but you know, nothing to podcast about, certainly, or even uh, tell my friends about. But myself and other fellow Reading comics, members of the Reading comedy delegation, myself, Lucas Jolson and Carl Richards, on the way back from a gig in Oxford, and it's like the whole of Oxford had just gone mad. We turned up at the train station. It was chaos. There were queues and queues of people, and there was some sort of fiasco in ro- involving rail replacement buses just not being there. And there was a member of station staff who got so angry, not only did he hurl his walkie-talkie into the ground and smash it, he removed one of his shoes and threw it across the railway station. I mean, uh, have you ever been so angry uh, you've removed an item of clothing and launched it projectile I don't think I ever have. I mean, it was it was ridiculous. And then there was a lady sitting on the platform uh, yelling something about how she couldn't talk about it now, but it was all over Instagram. Um, so it sounds like it's already public, whatever was going on in her life. And uh, we managed to find a train, which sometimes they're heading to Oxford. On the way there, no problems. Often on the way back, we have a right palaver. And uh, I think I met the we met one of the drunkest people ever on public transport. There's always the drunk who turns up and everyone kind of looks away and pretends not to notice. And you're just thinking, oh, God, don't make eye contact. Don't make eye contact. Don't talk to me. I've done my being. I've done my crowd work for tonight. I had to play a room of drunks. I don't want to talk to another one. And we were all sitting in the back of the train. Uh, so the driver's cab at our end obviously wasn't in use because they don't drive trains backwards because that would be ludicrous. And he kept banging on the driver's door. And he eventually came up to us and he was trying to get to Guildford. And this train only went to Reading pretty much. And then when he got to Reading, the denouement to this man's stupidity, I mean, maybe he was a slapstick comic genius, but he then tried to run up the down escalator. Um, got the best work out of him. I mean, he couldn't really... He could, he, did you see the look on his face? He couldn't work out why he was running hell for leather and not actually making much progress in the vertical up direction. Um, utterly ludicrous. Um, so sometimes the journeys to gigs are just as memorable, if not more memorable, than the gigs themselves. So um, I guess the moral is uh, learn to appreciate uh, the, the, the everyday or, or, or don't use public transport, whatever you do. I mean, maybe we all should have just chipped in and got an Uber. It uh, would have been much safer. <laughs> Unless that guy happened to be working for them. <laughs> anyway, so uh, let's hear from my guest then. Joe Baines has been engaging and delighting audiences for yonks and yonks with an affable array of great gags, anecdotes and people skills. And uh, I've known him for quite a while and it's always a pleasure to catch up with him. So here is... Joe Baines. This is the Stand and Deliver Comedy Podcast. It's the Stand and Deliver Comedy Podcast with me, Rodders. I'm in the King and Queen's pub ahead of a lovely afternoon gig called Coffee and Comedy. Although they only serve instant here, so I think they ought to rebrand. They've got cake. <laughs> Not happy, they've got cake. And I'm with Joe Baines. Hello, Joe. Hello, mate. How you doing? Right. I'm good. We've known each other a while. In fact, was it the first time we met? Did, did I meet you in Edinburgh when you were doing Licence to Laugh? Or yeah, did I meet you just before right. then? Yeah, yeah. You, were, you used to wear a suit. Uh, and yeah, you came and did loads of gigs at my uh, at one of my gigs uh, shows. That was good. Yeah, it was licensed to laugh at uh, the White Horse. It was that yeah, year. Yeah, that's right. And I did yes. a week worth. Of, you know, I was so grateful for you giving me a week worth of shows. Um, and yeah, I remember it was at midnight. Yes. And we did okay, except when there were two for one theatre yeah, tickets. That's right. Yeah. No, I think it was a Monday or something where. It'd be empty, but we but we had a good run. We had a really good run, and yeah, I was just giving out. I had so many spots, I was just throwing them out. Uh, yeah, I had a good time there. I learned a lot, 
I went back the year later and I did a um, 1am show, 1 to 2am show in a nightclub. And there they needed a bouncer permanently because I kept getting threatened uh, by the audience um, on a regular basis. Yeah, so that was good. That was really good. Because the w- week I did with you, we got a couple of, well, they were like the absolute drunken stereotype um, there was a man in the kilt who was so drunk we, we had to give him directions just to know where to sit down but there wasn't any I never felt threatened what was different the year why did it all go wrong what did you do to them so basically um, it was in uh, Espinage the next year and it was a 1am 1 a, 1 show and there's, I found out there's a big difference between midnight and 1am at midnight you get the drunks at 1am you get what's left over from the drunks <laughs> And you, and you can't make any money from it because all they've got is a soggy hands uh, and, uh, and coppers. So if you put a bucket out, all it gets is a few coppers, soggy coppers, basically. So I stopped uh, collecting the bucket within a couple of days. And uh, then the management came and said, look, we, I hear you keep getting threatened, so uh, we're going to put a permanent um, security. So I had a high chair in the middle of my um, comedy night, and on that right in the middle uh, a bouncer would sit there doing and so when, when it started did riding, he laugh if you make him laugh then oh, you're, he, laugh you're he just sat there but it kept it, when, when things started to get out of control the people around the audience would look see him and sort of so it never boiled over whereas if he wasn't there it would boil over uh, and I had uh, like literally every night at least two or three people would get dragged off by security because uh, I got threatened. Um, I enjoyed that. It was good. I want to say, sort of, well, fair play for many venues would have just said, right, show's too dangerous, let's stop it. But they thought, no, let's give him a bodyguard. Yeah. And fair, I don't know if you're brave or stupid for carrying on. Well, uh, I, 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 I took that spot because I wanted a tough audience. Uh, I wanted, I wanted a, a drunk heckly audience and that is exactly what I got so I got exactly what I wanted I wanted uh, a brutal audience and that's what they gave me so it's Bane's boot camp basically yeah, you sent yourself yeah. to comedy boot camp that's it so I did that for the whole month but I've, t- I've got to tell you my my skill set just went through the roof because yeah when you're being threatened you and you have to stay relaxed you have to stay relaxed yeah so now I guess when you have an audience who even is half paying attention and half sober and wants to be there, you, you must have an That's easy time. That's a present, yeah. If, if they're not threatening you and they're half paying attention... That's a bonus. It's amazing because um, you run a gig in Brighton, don't you? Yeah. A gong show. Do you? Do you have? I think we had a big row at one gig uh, oh, yeah. we did recently about the differences of how to set up gigs. I like my, to make my gig as nice as I can to bring out the best in acts, and I'm not sure if you were just winding me up or whether you were slightly exaggerating. But am I right? You like to make your gigs blooming tough to to, to weed out the weaklings and make them strong comics, or was that were you exaggerating a bit? No. Not, uh, I don't intentionally do it, but what I do is I go, well, I don't, I think a comedian should be able to handle any audience, any room, any type, you know? So, so a comedian needs to be able to perform. Uh, and, and I think just because you're a comedian and you've got the mic on stage, that doesn't automatically mean you've earned the right of that audience's attention. You have to earn that when you're up there, I think. That's how I see it. And so if you're good, and you can prod them enough and you, know, you, and you get their attention, then well done. But if you don't, 
and they start talking and they start cackling, then it means you just need to up your game. So I, I think an audience doesn't just automatically owe you their attention. You have to earn it. Isn't there a bit of give and take, though? Like I, I, I resist... I do ban myself from blaming the audience because normally it's because I could have done better. Yeah. But there are some nights, like if they're sat facing the wrong way or if yeah. it just isn't a place that's suited for comedy or the, the promoter hasn't put in any effort whatsoever and he's just brought in a stag do, isn't there a... Yeah, no, I, I agree, but that's, that's for a proper nightclub. I'm talking more about... Uh, because we're at the stage where we're learning. We're trying to grow. And you're not going to grow in, in a perfect room. You, you know, like if, if, if you've got the perfect room, the audience is paying attention to you, that's just too easy. You need, your training ground has to be tougher than a real gig. So then when you're at a, a higher level, then you have, then, then the audience will bring the best out of you rather yeah, than you right, having yeah. a, a cushy ride. Because I, I do music nights as well, and music nights are tough. They're awful, aren't they? I do yeah. them. <laughs> but I do music nights a couple of times a week. And when I first started doing them, um, they were tough. They would... They, they wouldn't even bet an eyelid at me. But I now go to music nights and they'll give me 15, 20 minutes uh, because they, I get their attention. But if you get a laugh under those conditions, even if it's just a, just a snigger, you know, or, or a, if it's just a, just a chortle, you know you've earned it and yeah. you know in a good room that might fly. Exactly, yeah. So you've earned that. Uh, and a music night audience will make you earn it. And uh, that's, so that's what I like about music night. I, I, I don't understand why comedians don't perform in music because that's like a, a tough gig. And that's well, you just designed. said it, didn't you? Yeah, that's designed to, it's designed to bring the best out of you. So, yeah. It's interesting. I, I think we've met round the back. <laughs> Can you remember when your first gig was? Yeah. I and and wh- more importantly, why did it happen? So my first gig, uh, I did a, a course, and uh, I can't remember who it was now, uh, but there was over 100 people in the audience. And I rehearsed so much that I memorized my set, like line for line, word for word. And I remember getting up, and then my mind went blank, and the next thing I knew, I was getting off. Uh, so I did my five minutes, but I don't remember doing the gig at all. Um, and, yeah, so, so that was my first gig. And then... Uh, after I'd been gigging for a while, um, I, I, and I'd talk about this on stage, um, I, was, uh, I, I got in the car and my wife came and sat in the driver's seat. And she literally, she was like really pissed off that day. She didn't speak. Uh, but she turned around and she goes, why are you doing it? You're not even funny. And I was like, what the hell? Where did that come from? And then she sort of faced the driving seat again. And then she just drove off, said nothing. And I went, right, that's it. I'm going to I'm going to prove that wrong. That actually gave me the impetus to up my game, to to work harder. Uh, I'm now divorced. <laughs> yes. So, result. So that story's true. Yeah, I heard you say it on stage 100 yes, times. That's right, yeah. That is all true. Uh, so yeah, but she didn't steal my jokes. Um, but yeah, it's all true. And I was like, Jesus. So that so yeah, so that's that's where my impetus comes from was to prove my ex-wife wrong. Uh, that I can make it in the comedy industry. So, um, yeah. So how long ago was the first gig? Ooh, the, so the first gig was years ago. I can't remember. It was a long time ago. But what I and my wife didn't like me doing comedy because it doesn't pay. That's a red flag. The, yeah, that's right. So she was like, "You're not doing this." Uh, so she would try to stop me. So she managed to stop me. I think it was like three times for about six months to a year. 
Uh, and one of those was that we moved to Switzerland, and there's no comedy in Switzerland. So for like over a year... If you should have started one, it would have been really tough. You I love tried. that. <laughs> I did. I did start one. I started a comedy club in Switzerland, and, but there was, no, uh, there was no other comedians there. So <laughs> the Joe Payne show. Yeah. No, so what I did was I got together about 10 guys, and I taught them stand-up comedy. And then oh my god, while you're learning as well This sounds like a sitcom So, so I, I ran a, a comedy uh, training course in Switzerland And at the end of it, I put on a showcase And about 130 people turned up for the showcase And the showcase lasted like three hours Because there was like over 10 comedians um, And these guys, I, I spent I think about two months with them Training them And I'm learning myself, you know, like so, but they did well. They did really well because we sat down and we wrote their material uh, in like a, a big groups. Uh, it was tough because uh, every lesson that I would give them, I would spend a week learning it myself and then deliver the lesson to them. Uh, and then uh, the next week, I would learn some more and then deliver the lesson. That's crazy. And where were you learning from? Just like YouTube um. tutorials. <laughs> this is how you do a callback. This is how you I was, die. I was googling. I was doing everything. I was, uh, and I was also trying to trying to get as much as I can from my limited experience as well. Uh, but it was very successful. The guys that I trained there, they still thank me even now for that amazing. Uh, are they still going? And, and no, are they in this not, country? They stopped. No, they're they're still in Switzerland. They're all entrepreneurs. Yeah. So they all started their own businesses. Uh, but every, if, I'm, I'm friends with them on Facebook. And even now, they thank me for that night because they had su- such an amazing time. Um, yeah, so, the, so I've run a, so I'm a com- comedy teacher as well. That's incredible. <laughs> Started teaching on, on, the, on the job, isn't it? I mean, yeah. that's incredible. While still learning his five minutes open for. <laughs> Crazy, it's a good story. So what was the, gave you the impetus to get up and do it in the first place? There's, a, there's always a trigger, be it yes. watching too much comedy or just thinking, right, I need to do something now. So, so I, I'm... Uh, I used to be an introvert and I was incredibly shy. Like, the idea of talking in front of people would give me mini heart attacks. And I was like, no, I can't live like this. I've got to get out of my shell. So I basically joined Toastmasters. I don't know if you've heard of them. So, is it public speaking? Yeah, public speaking. So, Toastmasters. So, and there, it was once a week I'd give a speech. And it was tough. What do they do? They train you? Is it yeah. about you learning to public speak? Yes, yeah, so you're learning to public speak and you're also learning to think on your feet on the stage. Uh, but once a week wasn't enough, so what I did was I joined three Toastmasters clubs. I would write a speech and I would deliver the same speech in all three clubs, taking the feedback. Uh, and see what landed. <laughs> yeah, that's right, see what landed. Uh, but, and uh, I remember when I used to go public speaking, I would, my body hated it so much, my brain hated it so much, that on, from work to going to the public speaking place, I would get headaches, I would get uh, pain in my legs, pain in my shoulder, you know, like everything physically to stop me from getting there. But once I got there, it would all those symptoms would disappear, but I had physical pain to stop me from going. What, what made you stop, think, right, I'm fed up of being shy, I'm going to do this, I'm go through this painful process and try and... Well, the thing is, uh, I, the way I see it, and that's just me, is that you have to be outgoing, you have to be an extrovert, you have to go out and reach out to people. And, if, and I wanted to be successful, obviously. And if I'm an introvert and I'm shy and I have no social skills, 
you are you cannot be successful if you're doing that unless you just want to make money. Um, so I needed to get out of my shell, and so basically I just kept throwing myself on stage. Uh, and one day I remember what my first time on stage, by the way, the, my very very first time was at Toastmasters doing a. Um, it was about thirty people in the audience, and I. We were doing table topics, so basically they give you a topic and you have to think on your feet for two minutes on that topic. And But they choose you at random. So I'd put my name down, and so there's six other people on there. And every time this woman went up to introduce the next person, um, she, uh, as my name as a name was about to be read out, I'm, I, my heart rate would go through the roof, my mouth would go dry, and my legs would turn to jelly, and I'd have a mini heart attack. And so, but I was the last one called. So by the time I called up on stage, I'd had about six mini heart attacks because between each one, I would have a mini heart attack. Well, like proper palpitations, yeah. feeling the whole it, works. Yeah. everything. And then she, eventually, she called my name. I, my, I got up on stage. My brain shut down, literally just shut down. I, my heart rate was like 500. And I completely forgot everything. So I stood there for 30 seconds, said nothing. And then eventually I remembered my name. I said it and I sat down. And I know it was 30 seconds because the woman then came back on. And she went, Joe Baines, 30 seconds. Well done. And I was just sitting there going, what the fuck was that? So um, that basically got me hooked. That was like, right, I've got to overcome this. So I basically just went three times a week, Toastmasters. What was your thought after that? Were you angry that you hadn't done it? Or, or did you no. suddenly see a glimmer that you think, actually, I can do this? Yeah, well, it felt like, it, it, it felt like you know, it, it gave me a high. It get, I got a high from it. Like, you know, like a high you would get from drugs. Uh, so, and I was buzzing. And I was like, oh, my God, this is better than taking drugs. Um, and that sort of hooked me, and a plus, I had to get over it as well. So I just just kept doing it. Uh, it's, it's the only way. But you just keep banging your head against the big wall until. But I remember, like a year into it, I remember getting up on stage once, about a year into it, yeah, and and I wasn't nervous, and my heart wasn't at 500, and my brain was still turned on, and I was like, oh my god, I've done it! I finally made it. You know, I finally. I can finally think on stage. Uh, so, yeah, and then, then I started doing stand-up after that. It's so. an amazing story. Because I've always been pretty extroverted, but I can understand introverts. And also, a lot of people can't believe that comics can be introverts. But it kind of makes sense, because when you're on stage, you're either play-acting or you're being a, a, a sort of amped-up version of you. Also, it's a different dynamic. I, when I'm on stage... Well, a comic on stage has the right just to talk and be loud and obnoxious and do whatever their character, whatever their performance requires. Off stage, in a pub, afterwards, oh, hey, how are you? Like, it's different. Do you yeah. find there's a difference between you? Are you shyer off stage or not? Or did you kind of manage to take the power of public speaking into your day to day life? So I've now, I'm now an extrovert. Uh, I, I'm, I don't need to go and hide in a corner to recharge my batteries. Uh, I get my power now from socialising, so I am now permanently um, extroverted. Uh, but I still remember, you know, being an introvert um, and having to run off every twenty minutes, hide in a corner for half an hour, uh, cry, and to recharge my batteries. Uh, but now I don't need to do that. I'm totally, t- I'm totally shifted. So. Weird. Was, were you introverted at school or? I was a complete introvert. I, in school, I had no friends except for the bullies. 
Uh, I was a teacher's pet, and I read. My time in school was spent reading comics and and, and, uh, playing with computers. That was it. That was my. Because when I'm on a lineup with you, I always think, oh, this might be an all right show because if no one turns up. I can guarantee that you and me are going to harangue all the punters that are in and try yeah. and drag them in. And it's great training for flying to Edinburgh. And I can understand why comics don't do it, because it's embarrassing and it's hard work and you might get rejected. But I've travelled probably quite a long way to do the gig. The hell am I going to do it to no one, right? Exactly. Well, I, I see flying and trying to bring the audiences as part of the gig. I ex- Even if uh, the promoter doesn't need me to flyer or, or to to go around and ping people to try to get I will still do it I'm trying to see it that way and I always offer and I always go and do it yeah, now even right, if because it, it's never as, how bad can it be the worst, worst comes to worst you get sworn at and I'd rather try get rejected by everyone in the pub than have no one in because I didn't try well the thing is I, I think that's just part of the gig for me to go around the pub trying to get people to in is just an extension of that gig uh, and I will try to banter with the audience with the people in the pub as well so for me, that's my extrovert training. So your set is all about a lot of your heritage and where you where you um, grew oh, up from. Yeah, yeah we, we, where you because I, I don't know because I, I just all I know is stuff from your jokes and you talk about your Indian family and I don't know what's true and what's not. Where you where were you? I'm not I'm not going to ask you a pass, but well, where were you born? Were you born here or there or where? So what I did was I created a character, and my character is an immigrant and a terrorist and. <laughs> And racist. Uh, because I've got brown skin, uh, so my thinking is that that gives me uh, like a license to be racist, to be terrorist, uh, and, uh, uh, and to be an immigrant without anybody being able to accuse me of any of those. But I do get sometimes audience members going, you know, there could be somebody in the audience that had uh, somebody die from a terrorist attack. You know, that would offend them. And I'm like... I'm like you know you can't please everybody in the audience you know if there is then that then tough you know that oh, so your jokes the way you handle those I don't want to spoil your punchlines but it's quite gentle and silly it looks yeah. like sometimes it looks like you're going to make a serious point about racism and then you flip it and go for like something really really silly so it's like it's very much obviously framed within a joke and it seems like and you're also playing across other people's perceptions of you so you're kind of giving yourself a license because of prejudices but then using it to do a silly bit of humour yes and plus being brown uh, I can get away with it but I do get audience members every now and then coming up to me but do you have to do a joke about Muslims you know do you have to talk about terrorism do you have to be racist on stage I get that and I'm like whoa whoa Oh, hang on a minute look have you seen my skin color what, what what are you guys talking about you know but i do get the, the, the people i find that get offended most uh, and they come and tell me about it are white people white people love to get offended on behalf of another race i'm taking i'm indian i'm taking the piss out of indians i get white people coming up to me saying how offended they are that I'm taking the piss out of India. I'm like, well, that, that's me, you know? I'm taking the piss out of my own culture. I'm allowed to do that. You can make jokes about, you know, Catholic uh, and, and, and blowing up, blowing priests and shagging, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm allowed to talk about, you know, my culture. But they don't... A, a lot of white people don't understand that. Uh, I, don't, I don't know why. Um, maybe you can answer that. I don't know. I think... 
I, I think because we're, I guess it's because people feel guilty, so they want to, I, I think I think there's two reasons, could be more, I reckon self-importance, if you feel offended you've got a platform to go, oh, well, listen, you suddenly you can make yourself unimportant, and I really think being offended has become a national hobby, yeah. and I also think that sometimes people are just hypersensitive because... I'm a nice guy I don't want to be called racist so therefore I'll stick up and be the opposite of racist so they kind of they overdo it rather than just going out there and being nice to everyone the second they hear something that might be entitled that might be perceived as racist they get on their high horse and and try and defend it and maybe that's offsetting some sort of guilt because they've been the privileged ones for so many years I think maybe I don't know this is my little theory I, I, I did a gig in Devon and it was completely white like not a, a brown person or a black person inside and the audience came up to me afterwards several people and they were look there's no way we could have laughed at that because otherwise we'd have been racist but if there's if there's a couple of black people or a couple of brown people in the audience and they laugh that basically gives white people uh, it is instant when you see racial humour you, uh, used everyone looks to them and yeah, just to say right. is it okay yes that's right so uh, if there are brown or black people I will point them out um, as, and uh, so that the audience knows look they're laughing it's okay if they're not you're screwed though aren't yeah, you yeah <laughs> that's right I am yeah I did a gig in Norwich um, some while back and again, there was no brown or black people there. And again, I died there. Um, so I've died in Devon and I've died in uh, Norwich uh, in front of an all-white audience. So now what I do is I go, oh, by the way, and I'll do that after one or two jokes, is I go, oh, by the way, I am brown. This is not just a really shitty tan. Uh, so if you heckle me, uh, that is racist. And if they laugh at that, then they relax because now I've pointed out. Because I think it's my voice. Um, my voice is too white, uh, and uh, it confuses the audience. Oh, by the way, I am, I am an immigrant. I was born in a village in India. So that bit is true. Yeah, that is all true. Yeah, I am, I am, my village in India, there was only two houses with electricity. Um, it was a proper backward village. You know, so the, you set up the toughest gig in the world. Yeah, I guess. Uh, yeah. It, th- there's, uh, so you know, you see in the in uh, in those uh, documentaries in Africa about those villages. Well, we have villages like that in India as well, and I come from one of those villages. And when I first came over to the UK, I was about ten. I didn't know any English, like not even hello. Uh, and one of the first words I learnt was the word bastard. <laughs> but I didn't know what it meant. And, and I, even, I remember it even now. The word sounded beautiful. You know the sound it made? The word from, from the word bastard. It was like music to my ears. And I would, sh- I would run around the outside and shout it at the top of my lungs because I thought it must mean something beautiful. Because... <laughs> Because it's such a beautiful sounding word, you know, because it's, it was, um, but then somebody stopped me, some people that I was, and they were, no, no, no this, that's not what it means, this is what it means. And, but once I remember, as soon as they told me what it meant, that word no longer sounded beautiful. You know, as soon as, as, soon as I learned the meaning behind the word, that word lost its beauty. That sound, sorry, lost its beauty. Do you know? So I was like, wow. So our perceptions are coloured by the meaning we give things in a massive way, you know? So, yeah, so that was my um, experience of, uh, of English. But 
I, I had to develop an English accent. Uh, and it's basically, it's paid dividends. It took me, I think I did a lot of training for a couple of years to get a British accent. So I used to listen to Radio 4 all the time. I would, um, I would have Radio 4 in the background for like four or five hours a day. And then I used to practice speaking slowly and pronouncing every syllable. So I read the entire works of uh, Charles Dickens slowly, loudly, and pronouncing every syllable. Uh, so that took me years to do. Oh, my name, Joe. By the way, that's not my real name. I made That name is made up. So when I left uni, uh, I, had my, I, had a, I have a real name. So the bit you do with a really, really, really long yeah, name, yeah, is that yeah. actually true? No. Oh, no, it can't be that long, no, really. So my real name is Jagindra Singh Bans, yeah? I'm Joe Baines. I've been voted as the Indian with the whitest name. <laughs> <laughs> by immigration <laughs> five years in a row but my full name is Joseph Baines <laughs> but it's alright guys I've shortened it uh, so you can call me Joe Baines did you guys get that? Yeah. of course you did now it's your go one two three racist <laughs> I'm kidding that's just the uh, Indian takeaway menu um. when I came out of uni this is actually completely true when I came out of uni I couldn't uh, I couldn't get a job I would apply for like 50 I'd send out 50 job applications 100 job applications nothing zero zilch and I was like what the hell do I do so then I went through my CV and I changed my name to Joe Baines. And then I went through my CV line by line and removed any references to India or being an immigrant. So that it looked like it was a white person's CV. Oh my God, you would not believe the change it, that it created. Literally within two weeks of, uh, two or three weeks of doing that, I had six job interviews lined up. That, that's kind of, that shows a very sad reflection on our country, really, doesn't it? Because it means that they just didn't want Indians and also... Yeah, were they no. surprised when you turned up? Yes. So that was the, that's the beauty bit. So I would, when I would, so the jobs I was applying were in computers. So the job first interview is always on the phone. And because I sound British and my CV, there's no reference to, and my name, Joe, they would just assume I was white. So they would interview me on the phone, I would pass that, and then they would call me in for a, um, you know, a face-to-face. And as I'm walking into the interview room, and the guy who's going to interview me is the other, the other end of the room, I'd be watching his eyes, because I'm expecting that re- reaction, you know? Whoa, you know? Hang on a minute, isn't he supposed to be white? It's sad, though, isn't it? Were they just trying to feel that people who couldn't speak English, or was it, is it worse than that? Is it just 
integral I, racism to the job market? I, I think because they would offer me a job at the end. Um, so they would interview me for two hours. And, and uh, I, I, I got very good at interviews. So I, 80, 90% of the time I would get a job offer at the end of it. So they weren't, I don't think they were racist. I think it was just, it's just uh, sublim, subliminal prejudice. Oh, that name looks a bit foreign. Um, I, I think on the surface they weren't racist, but I think there's some prejudice underneath. And because when I turned up, I was dressed as a white person, I spoke like a white person, I sounded like a white person, I acted like a white person, that, I, that my immigrant status no longer mattered to them. Uh, because they would all offer me a job. You do need to speak English to do a lot of jobs in this country, and that yeah, isn't not, racist, but it no, does seem like there was something deeper and darker yeah. going on. So if I'd had a, an Indian accent, I would not have got through even the first interview because they would have heard an Indian accent. But it's just even an Indian name to block you. That's, yeah, that's right. That's yeah. worrying. Yeah, I suppose. Um, but the, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't just, I don't see I don't see any problem with it. Well, when I say I don't see a problem with it, the way I see it, my jungle, my environment when I came to Britain is, is what it is. It's this environment. And in this environment, having a British name, having a British accent is an asset. Um, and it allows you, opens up doors in this jungle that normally wouldn't be open. And so in my you know, jobs in the city, everything, my, those training for a British accent paid off massively I reckon I would not be where I am I would not have gotten the success I have if I did not have a British accent oh, to be honest it would have been hard getting you on the podcast <laughs> I wouldn't have worried about the listener not understanding you yeah. <laughs> so now you've, you've taken all your I think we should wrap up soon because a gig's going to start but you've taken all your learnings from self-confidence going all the way up that and now you do your own confidence training courses yeah, that's right. so is that a recent development and is it about sort of passing on what you've learnt to help other shy people or so, so I started doing this about a year ago so, so far, I think I've had about 40 students, and most have been women, which I found quite surprising because I really designed it for guys because I'm a guy, and so I understand confidence problems from a guy's perspective. So one of the reasons uh, I started running them was I learned a lot of hacks on, on tips and stuff and little tweaks. I watched on the video the whole speaking from your chest so you don't sound scared, and then you yeah. kind of kid yourself into believing you're feeling safer than you are and I thought that was very clever yeah I mean it's also uh, I, one of the reasons I started teaching it was to take me myself to the next level because if you really want to understand something if you really want to embody something in, into your very core you, you've got to be able to teach it and so when I started teaching I learned even more and now at the moment I'm writing a book on confidence training um, so I started my writing my book last week, uh, and I'm I hope to publish it in the next couple of weeks. Um, and I also met these two women last night uh, at Museum of Comedy, and one of them worked for Spotify, and we started brainstorming um, for me a podcast. Yeah, the Joe Payne's Confidence Podcast or something? Yes, that's right. So um, I've I've exchanged details with them, and they're going to help me start. Um, uh, a confidence podcast on Spotify 
So, oh my God, I'm trying to get my podcast on Spotify. They, they won't reply to my emails. Oh, they? Oh, I have a contact now. In sweet, put new words. <laughs> awesome. Well, Joe, where can people find you? Uh, so, I'm everywhere. So, if you Google, um, so, Joe Bain's comedy anywhere. So, I, I use that Joe Bain's comedy on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, um, I've also put myself on Google as well. So if you just Google that, Joe Bain's comedy, it'll find me. This is the Stand and Deliver Comedy Podcast with Rodders. That was Joe Baines. Excellent to catch up with Joe, and sounds like he'll be starting a rival podcast very soon. Uh, so thanks very much for listening. I'd like to know who you are, if, if you are listening. If you're not listening, then you wouldn't have heard that. That was a redundant sentence. You can email me, info at rodders.com. Uh, right, couple of bits and bobs. At the Stand and Deliver Comedy Club, it's all go. We don't have an August break. While other comedy clubs are sitting in their Y-fronts on a beach somewhere doing nothing, we run shows right the way through the summer. Our next show is on... On August the 9th, it's a Thursday. Our venue is Smoking Billy's in the centre of Reading. Our headliner is the incredible Bobby Mayer. He's absolutely brilliant. He's been on 8 out of 10 cats, and you might have also seen him on Nevermind the Buzzcocks. We've also got uh, support from Caitlin Vine, Harvey Hawkins, and... Catherine Mather and uh, a bloke called Rodders, i.e. me, I'll be hosting the evening and the reason I'm emceeing my club, I don't often perform at my own club, uh, but I am this time because I'm getting ready for Edinburgh. Very excited about that. But before I tell you about that, you can buy tickets to see Bobby Mayer at my comedy club. Go to facebook.com forward slash stand and deliver comedy night and click on the big blue book now button. And uh, or you can look us up on Billetto, B-I-L-L-E-T-T-O, the ticketing website. Uh, Buy your tickets while you can, uh, because once you can't, you can't. Uh, Right, let's have some highlights from my own gig diary before I say goodbye. On the 4th of August, I'm emceeing a lovely afternoon gig called Coffee, Cocktails and Jokes, 2pm at the King and Queen on Foley Street. Always good fun, nice mix of acts there. As I just mentioned, 9th of August, I'm emceeing my own comedy club, Stand and Deliver, headlined by Bobby Mayer. And in August... August from the 20th until the 26th it's mirth in the morning 10 past 11 every morning that week at the loft in the counting house it's me hosting with a different lineup every single day I can reveal to you one of the acts appearing with me will be Joe Baines who of course we heard from earlier unless you skipped the interview to listen to the the post amble I don't know why you bother doing that it'd be very weird but you know it takes all sorts to listen to podcasts these days um, so yeah I, I'm, I'm desperate to tell you about some of the other acts we've uh, signed up for the show but I think I'm going to leave it until the next episode just to tease you a bit longer and all the information about these gigs can be found at the website rodders.com r-h-o-d-d-e-r-s.com do me a huge favour please if you've been enjoying this podcast you can leave us a nice review on iTunes or whatever podcast service you listen to a lot of you are on itunes so go to itunes.rodders.com is the quick link through give us a nice review because what it does it not only massages my ego it also boosts us up the charts which means more ears which means i'm far more likely to be motivated into producing more of these episodes uh so yeah this has been the stand and deliver comedy podcast thanks very much for listening i've been rodders and i'll see you on the next episode